0: I'm taking the conservative approach this year. Uh, give a hand. I'm not prepared.
1: Oh, great day. To make your first
0: Olympic team, just take us through the emotion right now. Uh, it's interesting you would ask that. Hey,
1: what's up, me boy? What's up? Uh, okay. No, I really My best mean. advice is you need wax. Shut up.
0: Unbelievable. You're <laughs>
2: You're welcome. you need laugh. No, it wasn't you me. Like
1: it you shut up. It's just like, if you want to talk to me outside,
2: I'm more than happy to talk to you. Talk about the fact that I am an Olympian no matter what it says. In the sun with your hair on down. Can we have a little bit of a little bit of a little bit of a little and the United States Ski Pole Company, Vitamix and Sport Hill. We'll recognize them as our sponsors for today's show. And today we are going to have some Olympics talk, our reaction to events on the track, why I think Colorado's can't really seem to get it right, especially at distance events. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about my thoughts on team the team from Russia participating in the games. Also, I have an all-class team. That means like classes in composure, class sportsmanship, an all-class team awards from this Olympics so far. Um, I want to uh expound upon the competition controversy controversy and we're going to expand on some ideas that i wrote in a column earlier this week also i had to put something in related to covid so we got to um you know create a covid rant Uh, also if we get to it we have some great olympic stories that i want to tell you about inside things that you may not know uh that are kind of fun that's what makes the olympics cool i think is the inside stories that are just so fascinating. And then also, sports and specialization. I might need to save that one. I always feel like I leave something out for the show yeah, that I never quite get to. So we'll see how far we make it. But let's, let's kick it off with our reaction to some of the events that have happened on the track thus far. Okay, so... Um, The two events, well, three events that I really want to react to, the Women's 800, the Men's 400 Hurdles, the Women's 400 Hurdles. The Women's 8, this was one of those great examples where uh, everything and more, what we expected from a thing, Mo, we got that and more, which was pretty sweet. To see a prodigy 19 years old who we've been hearing about now really since 2017, 2018, when as a high schooler she broke the American record in the indoor 600 meters um, and just a phenomenal talent uh, I think she's from New York, or that's where she was uh, an athlete in high school. So to have her come to Texas A&M, kind of have a dream season in college. Every time she stepped on the track, she was breaking records. I believe she finished as the collegiate record holder in the 400, in the 800, NCAA champion in the 400, NCAA champion in the 4x4. Everything just went according to plan. And then in the 800 at the Olympic trials, same thing. She comes in and um, vanquishes her foes. In the final, ran 156. Um, and one by several lengths, uh, we'll just put it that way. So very comfortable. Of course, in an event like the 800, when you have rounds, you have semis and then finals, anything can happen. Uh, it's not always that the best athlete is standing at the top at the end of everything. And I think that's what happened here in the 800, um, and it was not a easy field by any means. And and what would be interesting, actually, I would have loved to have seen a thing Mo go against someone like Castor, in or Prime, because Mo's time one fifty five, uh, and pretty much wire to wire victory in the in the final. It's it, it's uh, I don't think we've seen her maxed potential yet. So that was pretty cool, fun to see. Of course, we're gonna get to this later, the all class team because <laughs> Mo is definitely on it. She's poised. Really knows how to handle herself in front of the camera, uh, how she uh, how she speaks. It's tremendous. It's great having an athlete in the spotlight. Now she's going to be a few. She is a star already, um, but she's going to be that name you're going to hear to the next cycle over and over again. And the Olympics are kind of one of those events where, obviously, you know, the general public doesn't really engage with track and field until the Olympics, um, unless there is every year you know, records are being set or there's some sort of side story that is attached to it. I think it's possible that Mo will take one of two routes. I think she'll either be someone who every single year she remains in the spotlight because of, well, for example, next year we have world championships coming to Eugene. So that's going to right away there will be enough hype. Hey, remember Mo from the Olympics? Here she is. So she's going to be in the spotlight next year for sure. the The following year, twenty twenty three, is another world's year. Um, I think that's when that will the energy will kind of cool off a bit for the general public. Track and field fans are going to be crazy about Mo for a long time here. Okay, and uh, the depressing thing will be if you know she gets injured or has a bad cycle, doesn't perform uh, up to ex- expectations. Then of course you'll have the You'll have the trolls on the Let's Run, and they'll be they'll be barking loudly, but I'm just talking, for those of you who are casual fans, you're probably going to hear about Mo next year, and then you won't hear about her unless she starts breaking records even further in 2023, and then in the build-up to 2024, it's going to be Mo Mania, and that's going to be where we really see, I think, her true character, because... Four years, I guess it's only three years from now, um, which is kind of a good thing. I think in this case, four years would be more time for you to slip, slide, get injured, whatever. Slip in performance, I mean. So Mo, obviously, by all of the indications we've received so far as fans— she is absolutely someone who is going to maximize her potential. She's going to uh, remain level-headed. She has tremendous talent. The ceiling is off the charts. Um, I just watched a video w- with her coaches and trainers talking about just kind of her meticulous dedication. All of those things would make one assume she will be better in Paris than she was here. Is it Paris 2024? I think it is. So th- there's that, but uh, again... You can't forecast these things perfectly. And all it will take, I mean, look at Mary Kane. Honestly, Mary Kane, I know she's younger, but Mary Kane came from a really good family, was a very smart, intelligent person, lots of talent, went to a system that was really trying to take care of all aspects of everything. Um, Obviously, that was too much and not the right fit. I really think that right fit of what you surround yourself in terms of teammates, structure, culture, and everything, that's going to be a bigger determining factor. And, of course, the age for Mo now. Uh, an interesting sign <laughs> thing coming in is going to be this whole NCAA athletes getting paid. Mo became a pro athlete before the Olympic trials, so finished out NCAAs, turned pro, making lots of moolah. Now she's a gold medalist. Money is not going to be a problem. Okay, she's pretty much set for life there. But the question I'm wondering is could she actually go back to AM and race some NCAA races if she wants? I think now that you're the American record holder and an Olympic gold medalist, you really wouldn't do that for any reason. You're, you're going to be chasing international events, and there's there's really no point in being an NCAA athlete. If she if she would have gotten fifth at this Games, I think it would be a big difference because maybe then you do kind of try and do both a little bit. You know, you race indoor nationals. You race a conference meet. Maybe maybe you skip part of a season um, but come back for a, big, a bigger race if you want, and the competition's going to be good. Um, and then you just chase international stuff, uh, everywhere else. But but that's not the case with Mo. She'll be, but I, some other athletes, Cole Hawker could maybe be in that category. So Mo, you're gonna be hearing about her. I just hope we don't get to Paris or even 2028, and we have, you know, Mo being hyped up and something. You know, she doesn't make the team, or it's just kind of too much crazy, too much cray cray around her. Um, I, I like it when she kind of. Her rise has been just perfect for her. She's gotten the right amount of attention. There has been pressure, but it's been definitely, you know, she even said coming into the year, January, of, January 16th was her first collegiate race. You know, we, we forget that. It's like six months ago. She hadn't even competed in a collegiate race. And really the weight of expectations probably for her going into that race were higher than in this Olympic race, um, or at least into the Olympic trials. After the trials, I think people were like, wow, you could actually win gold. You know, you're the favorite for gold. Even we got rounds, we got heats, we got travel, we got all the extra things. You're not a, you're not a sure thing, but you're definitely the favorite. But but my point being, she went into college actually with more expectations, and she's just sort of r- climbed this ladder gradually, and that's been to her benefit. Where the expectations and pressure have has been reasonable and proportional, and something she can handle, and um, the excitement's still there. She's got people she's kind of trying to chase. Well, now things get interesting because she's the undisputed best in the world. So we kind of needed another carrot in front of there, in front of her. You know, I think, but we, we won't have that. So anyway, 800 though, fun to watch. We also had Raven Rogers get a bronze medal, which um, we're okay with that. I, I don't mind Raven Rogers. Um, she's a talented athlete as well. Pretty cool. I'm very bummed about Ajay Wilson not, not, um, not making the final. I think I talked about that on my last show. Um, how her career is just—it's going to go down as one of the most unfortunate in terms of Olympics because for how many times she's won a U.S. title and been ranked number one, uh, one, two, or three in the world and not gotten an Olympic medal, it's pretty sad. So I feel for Ajay, but we move on. The other race was the men's 400-meter hurdles. This thing, just unreal. And I kind of feel like at this point, every single person and their mother has commented on how earth-shattering, how redefining Carson Warholm's time was in the race. But I will say I think I was the first person on Facebook to at least, you know, make a big deal of it. I could be wrong, but um, <laughs> I, I commented, wow, I think I've seen the greatest athletic achievement that we will ever see in our lifetime. And now a couple days later, I might have to, to take this back. And it's not because I saw any other performances, but it's because I might need to be, um, I might need to have some doubt. Here's a headline from the Guardian a couple days ago, or I guess what about two days ago? Well, because it's fresh. Karsten Warholm criticizes Super Spikes as threat to track and field credibility. Um, basically, Warholm kind of went after um Rye Benjamin, which is weird. I Benjamin had the race of his life too. If you, if you missed the event, right? Benjamin ran forty six one seven. Carson Warholm forty-five nine four, that broke his own world record by point seven six seconds, and Warholm set that record just a few weeks ago. Um, prior to that, the record had stood for twenty-nine years. Kevin Young's world record, which do we have it on this chart here? Forty, forty-six. Uh, oh, it forty. It doesn't put it on here. Wow, it's forty-six nine or something. I thought maybe 46.7 something, 7.8. Anyway, so Warholm broke that, not by a whole lot, um, in July, and then smashed it by 7.6, which is crazy. Um, So, one, don't like his comment. Here's his quote. Um, Rye Benjamin, quote, ran on air, adding, he had those things in his shoes, which I hate. (laughs) Uh, Criticized Nike's super spikes as BS, saying they act like trampolines and take away from the credibility of track and field. Um, I don't see why you could put anything should put anything beneath a sprinting shoe. In middle distance, I can understand it because of the cushioning. If you want cushioning, you can put a mattress there. But if you put a trampoline, I think it's BS, and I think it takes credibility away from our sport. Um I, uh, He also said the track is crazy. Then this thread popped up. Is the track um in in Tokyo like doped? Um, No, it's it's juiced, actually, and the designer admits it. Here's from The the Guardian, uh, again, writes, "...in the lower layer of the track is this hexagonal design that creates these small pockets of air. They not only provide shock absorption, but give some energy return, at the same time a trampoline effect. We have improved this combination, and this is why we are seeing the track as improved performance, to protect the health of the athletes, to avoid trauma, but it should also give them a push." Uh, In lab testing, we can see the improvement. It is difficult to say exactly, but maybe a 1% to 2% advantage. That's from the Tokyo track designer. That's Andrea Valerie. Um, So that's, uh uh-oh, right? Oh, man. In Rio, the track was called WS. This new one is called WSTY for Tokyo. It's the latest evolution of the track. Track has been a huge talking point after the setting of Olympic national records of personal best. Uh, Valerie said it's completely within the rules, but it is also what we were asked to provide two components to protect the health of the athletes for trauma. I just read that. Uh, it's all prefabricated, so every lane is the same, and the run ups for the long and triple jumps also. The production is the same as a Formula One tire. Okay, well, so Warholm doesn't have any right to be talking about... I like <laughs> about Spikes being like a trampoline. You can't put trampolines in your shoes. Oh, by the way, you're running on a track that's made out of a trampoline. This is kind of interesting. If I guess if I was uh, Flojo, uh, she's not alive now, but maybe if I was Kevin Young, I would be a little more ticked. Although, he did he set his record in Oslo? So that track's not juiced, apparently. Uh, but yeah, in these sprinting events, if you're Bolt... Now you got to be watching out because these sprinters are going to come back. By the way, sprinters, how about that? That was kind of disappointing in terms of times. I think 19.64 won the 200, Andre de Grasse from Canada um, beat our two Americans. But, but anyway, if you're, if you're an athlete, you've got some records on the line. You shouldn't even be worried about doping as much as surface equipment, mechanical doping. That has to be something of a greater concern to you in terms of your legacy. And this brings me to my email of the day. Got a letter from someone and it says, uh, Cedar skier, would you rather have a track and field world record or a Tour de France crown? <clears throat> and for the longest time in my life, oh, sorry, do I need to read who that was from? That's from Jill in Anchorage, Alaska. Thank you, Jill. Thank you for listening to the Cedar skier podcast. Thank you for your question. Now I will answer. Um for the longest time track world and re- track world record would have been awesome but here's i'm kind of backing up okay tour de france first of all tour de france lives on forever that's awesome second uh so so your track if you have a track and field road record for 30 years that's pretty sweet but even if you do most people aren't um you know commenting on that you you could live up in Uh, the middle of nowhere in Pickon County, Colorado and, and be the 10 K world record holder. And it would kind of be the same thing as if you lived in Eugene, Oregon, and were the 10 K world record holder or Tokyo, like either way, no one's coming up to you and going, well, yeah, the the world record holder lives up there. Um, they don't care. And, uh, um, I mean, look at Daniel Coleman. His 723K, it's so underappreciated. It's just unbelievably epic. Bakaylay, his 10k record we thought would never get broken, then it did. No one was like going back and going, wow, Kayla, you were so amazing. But if you win a tour de France, that just that's forever. It's it's like a gold medal. Um and so I would want that tour de France. But this track issue brings up another reason why I would, and that is if you win a tour in 1933, or you win it in 2033. Either way, you won the Tour de France, and even personally, you can go, I was the best on that day against those competitors. So the world record appeal to me was always the fastest time ever. So if you're the fastest of all time, you're the greatest of all time. It's an objective thing. Uh, well, well, we're really kind of seeing that it's not really. You know, I, I actually am starting to wonder really, truly, honestly, if Jim Ryan is the greatest miler of all time in human history to this point. Or maybe it's Hick- Hickam al-Garouge. Maybe one of those two. But Ryan was running on cinder tracks in the 60s, and Garouge was running in the middle of the doping era in the late 90s and early 2000s. And uh, now we have the super shoes, we have trampoline tracks. What's next? So uh, that's why I would take those Tour fans' France titles because even just personally... Um, I think it it sits better. Like, yeah, this is the part of sport giving it your best. I w- I won. I achieved the ultimate goal, the ultimate prize. If you're a world record holder, you're still. If that's what you're hinging your career on, you still even within yourself could wonder. Well, if I'd had a faster rabbit, or if I'd paced just a little bit better, or I was actually in better shape, you know, two weeks later, but didn't get a crack at it. It's all those things. So the continual. So Jill, I would take the Tour de France the tour fans title speaking of the track not every athlete has had a joyous run around that oval surface here in tokyo we're going to get to that next and why i think one in particular our mr joe Klecker, is uh, a symptom of a problem that we're seeing in colorado based athletes that's next on the seer skier podcast stay with us Brooksy, if i want to explain it to you i would this is the seer skier podcast we <laughs> Okay, we are back here on the show, the Seeker Skier Podcast, Shovel Lake Public Radio. Thanks for joining us. Um, Something I noticed, I was watching the 10K, the men's 10K. That was on the first day of track and field way back. We had our guy Joe Klecker, Minnesota native, training in Boulder, on track club, ran at the University of Colorado. Awesome dude. Okay, great family. He's got genes. He's got credentials. He's got the right mindset. Everything's going for Joe Klecker. I like him a lot. Um, and and he really just did not have a good race in Tokyo. Now, this could be for a number of reasons, so I'm not saying that this is the specific reason that this happened to him, but it seems to me that I'm noticing a trend with high-altitude, kind of dry climate training athletes somewhat. And that is that it seems to me that athletes based in Colorado, high-altitude or dry climates tend to really, really struggle when championship races take place in humid, warm uh, climates. And that, that does make sense physiologically. I mean, they call humidity the poor man's altitude training for a reason. And I, I think what, what we ought to know and realize is that for those of you who live it um, live in places like that, humid, humid, hot climates, Florida, the Midwest in the summer, your body adapts, makes adaptations, physical adaptations, bringing veins closer to the surface, um, increasing the sweat response, um, all those tolerance things that allow you to push yourself harder um, when it's hot and when it's humid, kind of in the same way that someone who lives at altitude is able to do the same thing at altitude, that response of increased red blood cells, all that. Um, now, ideally, you you need to have both of those things. And so the, the dream world scenario would be that you can train enough at altitude to get the red blood cell increase, but also you are doing long enough stints to prepare yourself the responses for heat and humidity so so maybe it's just that that the typical collegiate athlete in Colorado whether it's Adam State um, Mesa UC um, uh, Mines Colorado Mines any of those kind of very good running schools um, that they they're not able to spend two months in Florida you know and and kind of build up that that adaptation but, but it is kind of something I'm noticing is those teams when, I think it was two or three years ago, they had the national cross-country race in Florida, and man, we just really stunk. And, and if outdoor track has been in human areas in Texas, Adam State men's, I noticed, just have not performed as well as, you know, during indoor track or if outdoor track is in a different location um, – Adam State athletes tend to do well out in the Northwest Pacific Coast in April and May, and I, I think that's because the temperature's cool enough where they're not dealing with that that just oppressive heat and humidity. So I'm just kind of wondering if this is a thing. and if it is, what do we do to fix that? Because I think people come to Colorado, for example, because the climate is amazing, the train's great. It's a great home base for training. I don't think that needs to change. Uh, I do think that if you are based in a place like Colorado and you're, you're a 10K runner, a 5K runner, collegiate athlete even, and you have the means to do it, that in the summertime, you should be spending long stretches of time um, in hot, humid places. I should back up a little bit. I think if you're a collegiate athlete and you're training for cross country, I would stay in Colorado, reason being typically in the fall Typically, the uh, championship courses are run on cool days. Right, it's November. It's even December sometimes. So you're not really dealing with heat and humidity very often. So I would, I would, I'd train high altitude and make that work. If, however, the championship was scheduled for a place like Florida, even in November or December, I would definitely consider. Um, doing a long stint in a hot and humid place and really trying to build that up. I I wish I knew the research behind how long that lasts because if it's one of those things where, like altitude, you know maybe it's going to last... Well, actually, I don't know what altitude is either, how long those adaptations last. I suppose it depends on how long you stay at altitude. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that if you do a stint in in high heat humidity for a month, you build up to your full capacity of adaptations, and it lasts for a week or two weeks. Maybe another month. Well, Now you got to kind of time that out. You know, maybe it's October. You're going, or a month out from your race, you're going to a place that's going to be really hot and humid. I actually think that would have been, in Klecker's case, more advantageous than staying at high altitude. Certainly in this case with Tokyo, and that's his only focus. I think if you could rewind the tape for him, you go, okay, let's look at the research. How far out do I need to do this? Bam, where are we going to go? Let's go to Florida. Let's go here. Let's go to Tokyo if we can. not obviously couldn't do that this year with COVID, but let's go to a place that's oppressively hot, and we're going to spend a month there before we go to Tokyo building it up, and we're going to uh, uh, count on that being our key advantage going into the race is that, yep, we have six years of living at Boulder. And the red blood cell adaptation from that, now we're going to get our heat humidity adaptations taken care of. I did hear on a podcast that one of the marathon runners had spent some time out in, not New England, but East Coast, um, recently to kind of try and prepare for that. I think they did that actually maybe before the Atlanta Olympic marathon trials, which was like an eons ago now, but um, Jake Riley talking about that. And, and I thought, yeah, that's that's something I think that's getting kind of overlooked. And especially in, in endurance circles, I think we just, we think altitude is everything, uh, and it's really not. And, and I think this might be also why sometimes athletes from the Midwest who just have to deal with harsh weather in general just do better um, from that standpoint in any type of high level international and national competition, because no matter what the weather is, they're going to be okay. If it's crazy cold, they're used to that. If it's oppressively hot and humid, they're used to that too. And if it's at altitude, well, they, all they got to do is fly out to altitude day before. No, they're not used to it from a pacing perspective, but physiologically they're going to be okay. They will, because, it, and that goes to like your adaptation things. I think this is funny, kind of a topic of conversation now with Leadville, 100 crowds of people coming in to um, acclimatize to the altitude before their race. It's like you're, you're you're doing yourself a disservice, okay? You have two choices here. Come to Leadville um, two months before the race, for two months, you know, if you can do that. Now you'll get acclimatized properly. Or you can come here, you know, uh, six months ago, do a trial pacing training camp or you're just trying to get used to pacing yourself at altitude don't worry about building up and acclimatizing just just work on how am i going to approach this race from a pacing standpoint kind of like that recent research with nordic skiing and the olympics being in beijing okay or your other choice is uh train like normal come in as close to the race as possible and race we learned this in our phys class, too, about just those those p- athletes who might come three or four days beforehand. Now they're actually tired on race day because it is more metabolically cost-expensive, um, uh, I guess I'll use that word, for you to live at altitude. So if you're here four or five days before your race, just everything you do from walking around to eating to sleeping, breathing, you know anything? All your little workouts that you have beforehand—you're you're not uh, doing that. It's not as easy on your body as if you were doing it at home, and you're not going to have enough time to acclimatize either. So what you want to do is kind of more shock your system. You know, you just hop right into the altitude, race your race at your training that you have. Um, and so this is true. My my thought on this this altitude thing too, with the Olympics being at that, is I think our team is taking the right stance of we need to learn how to pace at altitude because that's a totally different ball game, and you do have to do that in skiing. I don't think it's I don't think it's cycling. it's as much so I'll still make fun of the Leadville people. <laughs> Running it is a little bit too. You can go depending on the event, you can kind of go over red line a little bit. but um, I think that's that's your route is you practice at altitude and then compete. But I'm kind of straying away. I think my main point I want to bring up is I think athletes sometimes think about altitude too much. They don't think about heat and humidity enough. And I think athletes in Colorado are, are particularly guilty of that. Uh, and me personally, I find that when I go home to Moorhead in the summer, Minnesota in the summer, um, I feel much, much worse coming down from Leadville, depending on the weather, than when I do the opposite. Uh, Oftentimes, my first run in in the Midwest feels awful, um, and I feel like I'm really working hard because the humidity and the heavy air just weighs me down. And then when I come back, my first ride at altitude, I feel like a million bucks. And I think that's because theoretically I'm now more used to altitude. So that's still kind of taken care of coming from flatlands to or from sea level up back up to 10,000 feet. I don't I don't really have to make any metabolic adjustments there. But all of a sudden, after spending 30 days in Minnesota um, – my heat response feels so much better that, wow, 45, 50 degrees dry. Oh my gosh, I, I, I feel amazing. And I just feel great. And I, and I often will do some really good workouts coming back up to altitude. So I don't know, maybe that's just anecdotal. Uh, but it has been my experience that those things, you can adapt pretty fast to heat. So uh, it's something something for athletes to kind of put in. All right, for this next segment, we are going to Um, play a clip from the Dan Barrero show, K-Fan, Minneapolis sports-based radio station on the Olympic gold medalist um, issue. So take a listen.
1: As a pair of gold medals. Barshin, by the way, was the defending world champion. I'll throw the question out to the audience. What would you do?
2: Okay, well, what I would do in that situation is I would accept the co-gold medals because um, getting a gold is going to have massive financial implications. Okay, but that's not um, that's not really uh, at the core of this, this problem.
1: Presumably, these are very competitive individuals. They've been brought up on, fueled by competition.
2: Okay, I'm going to pause here quick. If you're listening to this show and you haven't been over at cedarskear.com, please go back and read the article I wrote about this and about true competition, the difference between competition and decompetition. Competition Competition is um, true, competition cares about the striving of two parties towards the end goal of maximizing your true potential. Okay, so true competition actually views sports as the ultimate goal as maximizing your true potential being the best that you can possibly be so true competition competition a contest it's an environment where two parties can actually be um, co striving or um, cooperation I guess they are they are pushing each other to each other's maximal efforts. Um, and that that's what competition is. Decompetition is, is actually what most people think of as competition. So the tearing down, winning at all costs, battlefield mentality. So please go back and read that article to give you some context before I start going on rants here. Because right here is a perfect example of Dan Barrero taking the word competition, fueled by competition. Which, if we're saying true competition, this is actually a good thing. When we have a really good athlete who wants to be the best they can be and another really good athlete who wants to be the best that they can be, and the carrot of winning is that is is kind of guiding them to help each other. To bring out the best in one another, which is what true competition is. Now, being fueled by competition is a good thing. Um, when being fueled by competition is used here, I'm assuming Barrero is is thinking about really decompetition. In other words, a win at all cost mentality to stand atop the victor uh, on top of the podium is the ultimate, ultimate end all goal. Okay. In true competition, standing on top of the podium, it's just a, it's a structural environment. It's a necessity in order to foster true competition, the spirit. So standing on top of the podium is not the end all. The end all is maximizing your true potential. The goal of standing on top of the podium is what allows you to maximize your true potential. It's just a classic case of language really not not being clear or, or not being used properly. Not, he's just being sarcastic. I know. Here, fueled by competition, fueled by he's going to say winning, and that's that's the problem.
1: Take nothing for granted, but give nothing up easily. Presumably, you're there whenever you compete to win. You do what they do, did, and say, okay, call today.
2: He says, presumably you're there to win. Okay, let me read to you an excerpt from the book, True Competition, all right? So in True Competition, the focus is on excellence and the enjoyment that comes from striving for it. In Decompetition, the focus is on conquest. Okay, and I like this on the side of the book. It says, but really, why a new word? Why do we have to invent this do word decompetition? He answers, because we need words to highlight important distinctions. It, this just goes back to the importance of language, the importance of definitions, clarity, right? And, and I reference that in my column, um, again, as being kind of a highlighting an issue with this whole controversy that is about it's because people don't know what the meaning of competition means, how it's derived from the Latin word um, peter, to strive together. Um, to strive, to work towards together. Um, so the true meaning of competere means meaning to strive with. Decompetition is just the opposite you're striving against. So the, the viewing of contests and competition is very important here. We want to, as coaches, teach people to view competition as a place where you are striving with the the idea of standing again on the podium winning losing the outcome it's necessary to keep those outcome structures around because it is that carrot on the end that the well it's not the carrot on the end of the stick the carrot on the end the motivation is that you want to maximize your full potential so we need to bring this about first we need people to realize in sports that the true meaning of sport is to be the best that you can be now we have to figure out okay how do we do that? Well, hard work, training, um, you know, emotional, physical, mental well being, all those things are coming into it. But competition is like a steroid. It's like a sport, it's like a performance enhancing drug that you can add to this goal <laughs> because it enhances everything. It brings out a level inside of you in terms of effort and training that wouldn't have been there without competition. We saw this perfectly played out in the Rye Benjamin Carson Warholm race. Um, would would Rye Benjamin have run forty six point one seven if Warholm went have been there in front of him? I mean, if you watch the race, Warholm uh, Vorholm, maybe you say his norwegian name, right? forty five point nine four. Vorholm is running the race of a century and he and benjamin is on him and he, and you could just tell right, benjamin is he's going he almost realizes i'm going to set the world i'm going to obliterate the world record i'm going to get second i can't let this happen i got to go get that guy and they they pushed each other to another level of performance it would not have been possible had they just walked out of the track and said i'm going to give the very best that i can possibly give today so framing a contest as an as a way an arena that enables you to, to use community to elevate the maximal potential that you have. That's the benefit of competition. Okay, so first you need to have that foundational bedrock philosophy of like, why am I even here to begin with? Why am I even doing this sport? Well, the goal is that you uh, learn how to maximize your full potential. Why? Well, because you're going to want to maximize your full potential in all areas of life if you care about who you are as a person. So if you develop those tools um, to do that here in sports, setting goals, overcoming difficulties, being introspective, the list goes on and on. If you learn how to do that in sports, you can apply to being a mom, a nurse, a teacher, a doctor, a librarian, a truck driver, anything. That's what we want. We want you to maximize your life, ultimately. Well, if you lay that foundation, now you now competition can be seen as something that is just an additional. It's going to help bring out the best in you. So, So really, these people are at these contests not just to win. That is the surface level goal. That's why they're here. And, and that's why right. if an athlete says, and if I were to say that I'm here to win, like that's my goal – that's fine. You can have that outcome goal, that service level goal. You you can still have that and also have the undergirding foundation that the real reason I'm here every day, twice a day, day in, day out, and that I'm coming here to this contest is to see what I've got and to see how far I can go and how fast I can go and how much I can push myself. So I'm really hoping that all my competitors here are at their very best and that they are going to push me to reach to a level I didn't even know was there. That's, that's that's the beauty of sport. That's the actually. That's the beauty of competition. Great competition brings out the best. And you know what? This is a really hard thing for young people to get, because because young people, especially when you think high school, well, even younger than that. I, I think some of my most pressure felt. I got to win. We're in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. You felt like your life was on the line. You know, walking in the hallway at school. If you if you're not the fastest kid in the school anymore because you got second place at the mile run, like it's over, man. Your life is done. And um, sometimes those pressures, the perspective is the most innocently... Absorbed in winning when they're the youngest, and you can think of high school athletes as well. I remember uh, high school coaches sometimes saying, almost being excited when we play an epic game where we lose by one or two, and they said, "You know, that was just an amazing game. You know, you guys brought it, and you did things that that we we've been working on in practice, but now you did them sharp and you did them better than you ever have before." And it's like, "Coach, we lost the game," you know, <laughs> and all you can think about is that you lost, and they're thinking about how the fact that there was such intense competition. Um, They saw things come to fruition at a level that they didn't even think was possible in you, and they're happy about it. Um, And so, so again, this is a difficult concept to grasp, all right? But but don't blame competition for that. Decompetition is the villain, okay? Competition that seeks to tear down, that is a striving against, that's the problem. And that's, that's, I think, the thing that people are celebrating of in society because of this case. They're looking at it and going, see, these guys realize that it wasn't all about winning. Well, guess what? It's it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. Let me explain after we play the rest of these clips. Or do
1: you say? Not so fast, my friend. We must continue to we jump. We must continue this. Boothofcampaign.com, Bradshaw Sean, Brian Inbox. There's more in the Temberry part that I got a big kick out of. As well Apparently before His final jump He I guess became a crowd favorite By the way in Tokyo Because he did this bit And athletes have done this From time to time Before each jump He would begin a slow clap That he got a lot of The athletes watching in the stands Then to get into I was going to say fans But there are no stands uh, and There are no fans in the stands And It became kind of Something that I guess a lot of the athletes look forward to. It seemed to be a crowd-pleasing concept, even in this case when the crowd involved other athletes, other Olympic athletes. And before his last jump, according to the Wall Street Journal guy, he placed a plaster cast on the track right beside him before his final jump. It meant a lot to him, apparently. Because that plastic cast represented a missed opportunity. Days before the Rio de Janeiro Games, he had set the Italian high jump record, went for one more jump, all seriously blew out his ankle, needed immediate surgery, and it meant that he was not going to be able to participate in Rio. I dreamed of this so many times, Tam Barry said, I was told athletes that we don't spend a lot of time on other than hardcore track and field fans just don't even know, even though these two are very accomplished. Uh, I love these stories. I love, and, and they're organic because you can't make them up. You, you can't go in saying, we're going to have, we're going to go down to, we're going to have two guys left and they're both going to swing and miss all three attempts and now we've got to decide whether they want to share a gold medal. You can't make that up. So, you're two two-time state high school tennis champ. Yeah, are you willing to share one of those titles with somebody? Uh, if, if for some rhyme or reason um, they said we have a weird quirk in the deal, you guys can both win gold. It's not a matter of one's going to win gold and one silver. Right. You're both going to be named state champions. Right. You're going to be named state co-champions. Do you take that in the uh, spirit of sportsmanship, or you say, I don't want to be I don't want to be Danny Downer or anything here, but I, 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 I gotta play this thing out. I'm always gonna wonder. Or do you take the safe bet, which is the best? Gold medal's the best. In ten years, twenty years, nobody's gonna care that. Right. There was another guy who got the same gold medal. You're not. You don't even have to volunteer that information. You got gold over your fire put.
0: I think for the second state championship, I probably would have shared it. The first one, not a chance in hell. <laughs> that answer your question? Yeah, it's a good answer. But also what I think makes this unique is with the uh, the high jumpers is they had, like, the moment. They had their moments. They had their competition. They were the last two standing or jumping, and they were both, I guess, you know, not getting the, the right height or the, the, the next height. Yes. Like, there was – they had that competition. Like, where I think it sometimes gets muddled is, like, what if they just couldn't do it for some right. reason? Or they're – you know, there was like bad weather or something random. And you say, you know what? We're here. We're just going to give it to you. Where they had their, they competed, and at the end of the competition, they were the last two standing, which I think is a cool part of it. Correct. That they outlasted everybody else, and that the fact that they were offered that, I think it's pretty cool. And, and again, you you nailed it. On um, it's unique. It's different. It feels like it's in the spirit of the Olympics, which is what I like about both of those stories. Because the 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 guy with the cast. That's almost every Olympic athlete, right?
1: That's right. And one one way or another. And you think one about
0: the struggle, another. even just getting to the Olympics yes. in general, everything that you go through to do that. Then you factor in this COVID year. Then you factor in this injury. All, all these athletes have something along those lines. So I think I, I love both of these stories. You're 100% uh, right.
1: Team, and, you know, again, I would think, well, if you're the, if you're the sort of the reigning world champion – You'd think, well, it might be harder on him than than Tanberry, but there also might be, man, we're tired. This is on you. In fact, you could even make the argument that I got an Olympic story to tell that no one else.
2: Okay, so first of all, I'll be fair to Dan Barrero here that there were a couple points that I didn't think of that I think are kind of worth mentioning. First of all, the the, the story of the Italian high jumper is fascinating. That is what the Olympics is all about: are the cool stories that we don't really hear about. Great, awesome. Um, high jump. The, the whole idea that this is a tied event, where hey, these guys they these guys went through the competition, they competed already, and now it's a tie. Not exactly. Okay, if this had been a cross country ski race and they crossed the line at the exact time down to the thousands, now it's a it's actually a tie. Okay, it's actually a tie. That's fine. That's totally different. But in the protocol for high jump, this this isn't over. What they're doing is stopping the match prematurely. I think that's totally different. So this conversation isn't happening at all if two athletes tie in a running race or in a timed event, because if, if, if it's actually a tie, then it's a tie. The reason this is a problem is it wasn't a tie. They just stopped early and said, hey, we, we could both get gold. So let's just stop. And and I think the, the hands should be going up like, why why wouldn't you just do this all the time? I mean, I actually think, why don't all the 5K runners, before they start their race, just go, hey, officials, we're, we're actually just interested in doing 12 golds here. Are you guys okay with that? I mean, come on, right? Or running one lap and, um, you know, holding hands as you cross the finish line and going, we're done now. And so we're going to stop the race here. And that's that's fine. That's it. And in a running race, honestly, if there was something written in the rules where if the two athletes tie at the end, they must run another lap, you know, a showdown two hours later. Well, then that's in the rules. Okay. You know, like, so that's a, that's a poor argument, I think. But I want to go back to the point I was going to make before. And that is, this is getting celebrated because people are kind of seeing it as, look, these athletes are showing that what really matters isn't the outcome win or lose right? It's the Olympic spirit. What I want to say is that it's actually exactly the opposite. What they are telling everyone is that the only thing that matters is the outcome. In fact, it matters so much that we're willing to stop this competition so that we have equal outcomes because that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter that we strive together, put our best on the line, see what we can do, and let the outcomes just be what they are, which is what we should teach people. We should teach people, look, it's not about the outcome. It's about that you gave your best to be your best. And look at that guy over there, little Joey, who who beat you by, by one one-hundredth of a second. It's a good thing he was here because he pulled out something in your competition that we didn't even know was there, and, and you really did your best. That's what you hang your hat on. Nah, silver medal, we're going to forget about that anyway. Don't worry about it. Ten years from now, no one's going to remember. Ten seconds from now, people are hardly going to remember. Okay? No one here even remembers who was the Super Bowl MVP in 2018 or 2019. Okay? So don't worry about it. Nick Foles probably was one of those. Anyway, I digress. But what they're saying is no. Outcome is actually the only thing that matters. So in elaborating on my article, I want, I want you to think about this as a coach. We have two things uh, that you're teaching people in sports. I know way more things that we teach. But, but let's just, in terms of this argument, let's think about really foundational. There's two things that happen. Either one, you're teaching them that it's all about outcome. It's all about winning or losing. Or... You're teaching them that sports is all about the process of maximizing your full potential. Striving for true success. And we'll define true success in the Woody, John Wooden way of that satisfaction of knowing you gave 100% effort to be the best that you could be. Okay, so it's one of those two things. You're teaching them about outcome, or you're teaching them that sports is really all about outcome, or that sports is all about strivation towards true success, it's, it's, it's about the process of maximizing your full potential. Um, and, and I believe the whole point of sport, or really any extracurricular, is to understand, utilize, and develop the skills that allow you to maximize your full potential. So again, you can go out and apply that to other areas of life. And, and, I, and I'm willing to stand and say, I think that philosophy should be everyone's philosophy of sport at its foundation. I, I'm fine saying That's the ultimate philosophy for sport. Sitting on top of that, you can have other reasons and whys for why you're in sport, but they all ultimately flow from that. And I mean, for me as a Christian, everything I do, there's actually something underneath that foundation to be the best I can be. Because a great question to ask someone would be, why does it really matter to maximize your full potential? I wonder what John Wooden would have said to that. You know, I have an answer for that. I I would honestly tell them, well... I'm created in the image of God. I'm a, I'm a child of God. He calls me. He's given me. He's given us all different skills and abilities, right? Someone has ten talents. Some have five. Some have one. He has called me to invest in those and use them for the kingdom. That's what I'm doing here. So I have a re- I have something I can even you know undergird that foundation. But let's just let's just throw God out of the picture here. <laughs> if if uh, that was that was rude, didn't mean to say it like that. But let's let's take. Let's take my biblical foundation for that out of it. We still have an excellent foundation for other people to just assume as well. So I'm okay going, no, that should be your foundation for sport. Because everything else, all the other reasons, I'm doing this for mom, I'm doing this because for all the oppressed, I'm doing this for that. It ultimately is still flowing from a place of my ultimate goal here is to be the best that I can be. So, okay. So now consider these options again. Now you forgot them because I ranted, right? Option one, all about outcome. Option two, all about being the best that you can be. So as a coach, I think we want to create an environment that fosters either one or two. Now, when you give everyone a gold medal, and, and let's just say everyone, what you're saying is, hey, hey, great job. Oh man, we we really you know we wouldn't want you to miss out on that feeling of having a medal around, a medal around your neck. So here let's let's give everyone a gold medal. What's wrong with that? The message being sent is this medal is pretty important. So important, in fact, we're going to make sure everyone gets one. Now I know that's not what happened here, right? But what if the conversation between those two guys would have been, "Hey, um, look, man, like this is great competition. You know, at the end of the day, gold and silver." really doesn't matter that much right like let's keep this rolling because we are pushing each other to new heights right now now granted you could say they're not really pushing each other to new heights right they've reached the highest they could go <laughs> yeah that's true but the competition isn't over we're, we're about to see some clutch moments maybe we see them both fail in the next two attempts and then that third one you know Bashir goes over and the Italian is sitting there going it's over for me and then he clears it And then the next round, he wins, right? Maybe he rolls an ankle, the injured ankle, right before his winning tiebreaker. You know, there's there's something here that was missed. And if they would have both been looking at each other like, yeah, you're right, man. That gold medal isn't the end-all, be-all, you know? But when you give out medals to everyone, no matter how they did, what you're telling them is that is the end-all, be-all. Because we made sure that happened. As coaches, we made sure you still all got some of that. Instead of going, you know what I want to make sure each of these athletes has? I want to make sure they have the chance to maximize their potential today. I want to make sure I give them an opportunity to try the very best they can be. And I want to make sure that as a community, when they're competing against each other, that competition is a striving together, not a striving against. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure we have good refs. I'm going to make sure we have fair timing. Rules are clear. I'm going to make sure that people are giving their very best efforts. That's my job as a coach. I'm not going to tack on a participation trophy at the end. I'm not going to to say, hey, why don't we just settle for a tie? Okay, and by saying, why don't we just settle for a tie, I'm not not saying that we got to win. Right? I'm saying we need to play within these boundaries because the boundaries are important. The boundaries are what give us a healthy contest. If you're so focused on winning and losing that that's your end-all, be-all, that's your problem. That's not contest's problem. That's not competition's problem. Competition isn't to blame if all you care about is winning at all costs. You're to blame. I think that's the problem that, that is making me frustrated here is competition is the one getting thrown under the bus that's not the problem here. It's coaches and athletes who have been taught and are teaching people to be consumed by that and to feel like that is the only thing that matters. So as a coach, you know, when you award three medals for one, two, three, first, second, third, the way it's designed in that structure and everyone else has to go home empty. What you need to be foster, fostering in, in your athletes is the realization that at the end of the day, the outcome means very little we might have needed this competitive structure cuz it creates this environment where our athletes are being pulled along to pull out the best out of them but in the spirit of healthy competition other athletes pulled pulled us along to things which which were greater than i thought were even possible okay that's what we're tr- that's why we need that structure is competition creates something an environment where people are pulled along to great things and so, kind of summary: we need that one, two, three outcome, not because the the in and of itself outcome is important, and not because in and of itself awarding a gold, awarding a silver, and awarding a bronze are important. It's in, it's because the outcome creates and fosters healthy competition, and healthy competition fosters the striving towards individual and team true success, the maximization of your fullest potential and so it does kind of bother me when when um radio hosts like this and and i've actually wrote i wrote an email once to the common man dan cole who's on this station as well you know major market radio station kind of just posing this idea that isn't it sort of sad that we have you know three four five six classes in high school basketball now you know it just keeps growing and everyone's becoming a winner and and, um, his whole take is look man get the kids get the kids their fun right get over it Get over it that you don't get to see your one champion crown in the ultimate big tournament, right? There's four or five kids; the, the, more kids get to go to state. That's a that's a a dream come true for them. And um, I get that point. You know, I would have loved to have been a beneficiary of that. Hey, uh, you know, NCA national meet, right? Usually we take the top 50 to the meet. Uh, we're going to take the top 200 now. For me, I go there. I go, yes, I I, I made it to nationals, right? I did it. And it probably wouldn't have dulled my feeling of recognition for that. I'll, I'll be honest, right? I would have still carried around the shirt, the gear, been like, I did it, man. I, ma- I made it. I'm one of them. Um, but, but if you expand that principle out to the very end, it would. If you just said, hey, you know, the national meet is now an all-comers meet. Everyone's invited. Well, now you have completely eliminated the luster from it. And um and for so for some kids by making a new class in football or basketball and now their their school easily makes it you have taken away some of that luster so you're shooting yourself in the foot again what you're teaching kids is that um the the outcome is actually the only thing that matters and we care about you so we're going to make sure you have a good outcome okay so again it's not exclusis exclusivicity exclusivicity I can't say that word. Being exclusive, having that exclusive nature to championships, to winners and losers, can't be the end-all, be-all, but it, it has to be there so that we can create an environment where we teach kids the proper perspective. Um, so yeah, the, the people who are thinking, why don't we just why don't we just create another class? Why don't we just give everyone a medal here? The people who have that mindset, you're thinking in terms of skin and Band-Aids, not structural bones and ligaments and tendons. Okay? Um, and so you might think I'm really freaking out about this, this whole ordeal. And, and I'll be totally honest with you. Okay. On the surface level, again, first of all, I don't fault these athletes. I think they did the thing that I would have done in that position. Of course, and what, who in their right mind would have not accepted gold. Okay. You both get a gold thrill, right? Financial incentive. So now I won't say that that would have been the right call for me to do. All right. It's a little bit, um, that, you know, the morally right thing to do would have been, Hey man, even though I risk losing to you, uh, we should, we should do the jump off. Okay. The, the foundational reason is much more important than me having a gold medal around my neck. And that would have been right. So I'm just going to say, right, right off the bat here these guys are going to go off and this is going to be a great thing for them because now they're going to they're both going to be gold medalists it's a cool cap ending to that story they're going to make money from it everyone's going to celebrate them it's going to work out well for them okay but really at the core it's more about the meaning behind that decision it's more about what that kind of a decision represents because again if you haven't heard me clearly like what they are telling people is that outcome is all that matters. And we need to run far from that in sport. Um, that is leading to the deterioration of so many things. And, and quite frankly, sports isn't worth doing if that's the only thing. If you're going to say that's really the only meaning of sports, then I'm going to stand right along the side of people who say that we should get rid of sports in high schools and college because kids should focus on books. I'm going to stand right with them because that, that actually makes sense given that worldview. Uh, see, I believe sports is maybe the ultimate training ground for life. So you better have that in high schools and colleges because it, it might it might actually impact their um, their schooling. And it's definitely going to impact the rest of their life in, in a myriad of other ways. Um, so, yeah, if, for the sake of sports, we need to fight for that. And, and that's maybe what I would have said too as an athlete is, hey, man, we got to fight for what's right, real, true competition. That's important. Let's do it. And in true form... Um, now used up my whole hour going on a lecture rant. And so all those topics, right? Wanted to get to, want to talk about Russian athletes and sports. Want to talk about the Soviet gymnast, um, story from the fifties. Want to bring that up. That's cool. Um, and uh, my all Olympic class team, I think we're just gonna have to do another podcast when this Olympics, when these Olympics are over. Um, it just keeps piling up. So, um, yeah, until I'm being paid to do this full time, right? And I can do a pod every day. Which, which would impact a lot of people, right? It would impact thousands, thousands. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll touch on those other things. We we'll want to try and keep these a little bit shorter so people can digest them, and uh, we'll get back to that later. So this has been the Cedar Skier Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. You can always comment on Facebook. You could check out cedarskier.com to read some articles. Comment there if you'd like as well. Um, we hope you are enjoying these shows remember to keep on striving we'll see you next time in here with
1: jesse diggins after the sprint showdown brings you well competition
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of the Cedar Skier Podcast. Head on over to Cedarskier.com to listen to past episodes, read feature articles, and follow Team Cedarskier.com in their training and in their life. We hope you enjoyed this show. Also, head on over to Anchor to check out this and other episodes.